Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today we have for you a brand new episode just come out from under the 60-day embargo period during which our participating newspapers have exclusive rights. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on August 1st of 2023 under the headline Rajneesh Puram, Oregon's most infamous ashram. This recording is part one of this five-part story. Part one is titled Inception. Here we go. Once upon a time in India, a man lived. He would go on to become one of the most influential thinkers in New Age thought, but at this time, the early 1960s, He was merely a philosophy teacher and one of thousands of gurus living and discoursing in that land of gurus. His name was Chandra Mohan Jain. But even then, just a few years out of graduate school, Jain was different. To call him charismatic would be a colossal understatement. By all accounts, this man could look into your eyes and speak to you for half an hour and you would hurry home to sell all your earthly possessions just to stay near him. He was charismatic enough that by 1966 he was drawing big enough crowds and making fat enough cash on the speaking circuit to quit his teaching job at the University of Jabalpur seven years after taking it to focus on his side hustle as an independent guru. As a side note, it is actually possible that leaving the university wasn't his choice. I haven't been able to find out for sure, but academics will be quick to recognize the significance of that seven-year mark. Someone may have slipped Jane the word that he would be denied tenure if he stayed. In any case, once Jane focused his full attention on the guru industry, the world fell at his feet. The field was very crowded for would-be gurus in India, but Jane, who was by now calling himself by his boyhood nickname of Rajneesh, which means moon, rose quickly through its ranks to become one of the most successful and well-known gurus. He did this with a combination of oratorical skills, remarkable philosophical insights, personal charisma, and finely tuned instincts for how far he could go in taking controversial positions without sparking a backlash. Unusually, at his conferences and lectures and meditation camps, he dared to criticize some of India's most revered institutions, Hinduism, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, traditional morality, the guru system itself. People heard him, heard the certainty in his voice, looked into those hypnotic eyes, and joined his movement on the spot. As far as religion went, Rajneesh taught that every person was a religion unto him or herself. Rather than looking outward to some sort of external dogma or prescribed code of conduct, one should look inward, deep inside, throwing off expectations and becoming consistent only with one's own deep identity. There was, he said, a divine core inside each person, and where that core lies, there is God. Nothing outside matters. When you get right with you, God, on a path to enlightenment, your relationship with the outside world and other people becomes far less important. Obligations? They're optional. Guilt? It's illegitimate. Compassion for others? 
usually desirable, but not always. It's obviously very different in most ways, but the philosophy of Chandra Mohan Jain had a few things in common with that of philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand. And like Rand, there was a lot to like there if you were a wealthy person seeking a personal philosophy or a path to spirituality that didn't ask anything from you or require you to share your bounty or make you feel guilty for being fortunate in life. As with Rand, there was also a lot there to like if you were young— young and powerful and capable and frustrated with the demands and constraints of society. Jane taught that the impulses and urges that most faith traditions expect young people to resist are simply part of life and should be indulged, not resisted, so as to reduce their forbidden fruit appeal. The path to desirelessness, which is where you wanted to get to, was through indulgence, Jane taught. At least one of the paths to desirelessness, and of course, enlightenment. The other similarity to the philosophy of Ayn Rand is the core sense of elitism. It wasn't as blatant and offensive as Rand's makers versus takers paradigm, but it was there, and it would become especially obvious later on. A sense that the wise sannyasin on a quest for enlightenment was a special kind of human. The laws and morals of the ignorant rubes of the outside world had no legitimate authority over him or her. That elitism would cause the movement trouble later. In the meantime, though, everything was great. Slowly at first, and then more and more rapidly, young and or wealthy Westerners started to discover this startlingly different guru. His message resonated with them even better than it had with the wealthy of India. And that was especially true after 1968, when, after moving to Mumbai, Rajneesh started discoursing on sex and love. Sex, he said, was a divine force, a form of worship of the god within, a a step on the ladder to enlightenment. The primal energy of sex has the reflection of god in it, he said in a discourse transcribed for publication later as From Sex to Superconsciousness. It is obvious, it is the energy that creates new life, and that is the greatest, most mysterious force of all. By the way, I hope you'll excuse me not trying to do an Indian accent for this. I can't do one, and it would just end up sounding derivative and disrespectful, so my Bhagwan voice is not going to sound very much like the Bhagwan. But back to our story. So this policy on sex sounded well, and sounded very academic too, but as a practical matter it translated into urging people to ditch all their cultural and religious norms and taboos around sex. Rajneesh gives you the opportunity to sin like you've never sinned before, only he doesn't call it sin, wrote John Eflund, an ex-follower of the guru, in an article for the Spiritual Counterfeits Project, a Christian organization best known for crossing swords with the transcendental meditation movement in the 70s. The path to desirelessness is desire. It was in Mumbai that the guru changed his name, taking the title Bhagwan, which means blessed one, and Shri, which means master, Rajneesh, which, of course, he was already calling himself Rajneesh, right? So now he was Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, or the Bhagwan, the Blessed One. This would become a thing among Rajneeshis until the end, by the way. Each newly added sannyasin was given a new Hindi name, and new clothes dyed in various colors of ochre or red. 
Rajneesh continued getting more popular, and finding enough space to host his meetings and meditations became a challenge in the city of Mumbai, so he started looking for a place with more room. And in 1974, some of his followers found a doozy. It was a private four-acre enclave in Koryagon Park in the port city of Pune, on which they could build the Sri Rajneesh Ashram. And this worked out really well for Rajneesh, at least at first. Now that he had an actual campus, Rajneesh was able to really put on the kind of shows that took his attractiveness to Westerners to the next level. And it was at Pune that Rajneesh's movement really hit its stride, especially after 1975, when quote-unquote therapy groups were added to the meditation groups offered there. This was an attempt to court more Westerners, and it worked great, but some of the therapies were kind of unconventional. The most notorious one, about which there are tons of rumors, and separating out the rumors from the facts about it is not easy to do, but I've done my best, was called the Encounter Therapy Group, and it met in a windowless room with padded walls in the basement of a building called the Krishna House, and in it, participants screamed and thrashed around and allegedly also attacked one another during sessions. And there were rumors that they engaged in sex acts during encounter sessions, which I pass on to you with the caveat that they are rumors passed about by people who were enemies of the sect. So they were probably not true. However, the attacking one another thing probably was true, because in 1979, the ashram announced that violence would no longer be used as a means of emotional catharsis in therapy groups, which sort of implied that, you know, <laughs> previously it had been, which is not going to do that anymore. Also, locals in Pune by 1979 had come to regard the ashram as a public menace. They called Rajneesh the sex guru and resented the thousands of well-heeled Westerners that filled their town and... Some of them were offending the locals with disrespectful and promiscuous behavior, and some of them were engaging in drug trafficking and even prostitution to raise money for extended stays in India. Obviously, not all the Western followers were lascivious party hounds and criminals and hookers, but some of them apparently were, and the ashram was not showing itself to be very serious about policing them. But no amount of bad press, it seemed, could slow Rajneesh Puram's growth. The movement soon outgrew the Pune Ashram. Four acres sounds like a lot until you break it down. It's a square of land, 417 feet on each side. I mean, obviously, it doesn't have to be square, but that's how much land four acres is. Many modern supermarkets are more than four acres inside. Followers started looking for a new place with room to grow. But... By this time, word had gotten around India about this renegade guru and the gang of obnoxious young Westerners who had flocked to his banner. They could not find any place in India that was willing to have them as neighbors. And so things kept on as they had been, crowded into their little four-acre campus. Moreover, there were some legal troubles on the horizon, too. The Indian government in 1974 officially revoked Rajneesh's tax-exempt status. This entire time that the Pune Ashram had been growing by leaps, they had been fighting with the government over this tax bill, and it was increasingly evident that they might actually lose that fight. And then the other thing was the guru's health. It was starting to fail him. He had developed diabetes, he had back troubles, his allergies were worsening, he needed to move someplace dry anyway. So why not just skip the country entirely? Keep the tax money, never return. He just needed to find a place with wide open spaces and a tradition of leaving one's neighbors alone. Sound familiar? 
Sound like Central Oregon to you? Sounds like Central Oregon to me. We'll talk about how that went in part two of this five-part series. Key sources in part one, as in the rest of it, were works by Eric Kane and Nadine Jelsing, Corey Fry, and, of course, Les Zeitz. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do, or to find the full citations and visuals that go with today's show. If you haven't already, check out our Offbeat Oregon books. They're basically revised, updated, and re-researched collections of these columns and topics arranged by, uh, podcasts rather, arranged by topic. And so far we've done Heroes and Rascals of Old Oregon and Love, Sex, and Murder in Old Oregon and Bad Ideas and Horrible People of Old Oregon. The third title is probably going to be out by the time you hear this. If it's not, that probably means that I'm in big trouble. Anyway, you can find these in hardcover, softcover, ebook, and sometimes audiobook, wherever you get your reading materials. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, please see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon history episodes come out once per weekday, usually around 6 a.m. when I'm on the ball. With this particular one, though, we are dropping part two on Saturday and part three on Sunday and part four and five on Monday. So our schedule is a little bit different and we're actually working through the weekend. But in any case, it won't be long before the next episode is on your device and ready for you to queue up and enjoy. And until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.